out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is The C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, always playing the finest in indie pop from that golden decade. We also love a special guest. This week it's going to be the turn of the vocalist, singer and guitarist and main person of the band Poe. This is Ruth Miller, who we spoke to quite recently to find out more about life, love, poetry, all that kind of groovy stuff. Anyway, after a few minutes of casual chat, getting to know each other in the world of showbiz, we got down to that very exciting question that was the musical development of the artist and this was Ruth's response. Ruth, it's over to you. Um, I'm quite old now. Um, I was born in the 60s and I grew up in a family that my parents weren't musicians or anything but they were always singing songs, daft songs, folk songs and army songs. They had two albums, LPs, um, that they played a lot. One was Sgt Pepper by the Beatles and one was The Supremes. So I think that's two really good yes. taste albums to grow up with. Um, I was forced to have piano lessons um, by my mum, but the, the piano teacher was this very old, or she seemed very old at the time, lady who smoked continually in my face and sucked polo mints when she wasn't smoking. So it totally put me off <laughs> piano lessons. Uh, then my cousin Christopher uh, came to stay when I, I would only have been about six or seven I think um, and he was into all these bands that seemed to have colours in the name and what what made sense to me was that to be in a band you had to have a colour so mm. he was into Pink Floyd, Deep Purple, um, Black Sabbath and he taught me how to play three chords and that just set me off for life so after that I, I could play anything with the three chords um, and at the time I wasn't really aware of anything apart from the Beatles and stuff my parents had um, but eventually glam rock came along and disco and rock and things like that. So I got into chart music um, and then punk happened. And I was a bit young to be a punk. And being at school, you weren't allowed to wear what you liked. You had to wear school uniform. Um, but in my head, I was I was a mini punk rocker. Um, and the spirit of punk, I think, is what reappeared in the 80s, because I think all these children that had been aware of punk and that idea that anyone can be in a band and particularly girls can be in bands um I think that influenced people like me so when I was old enough um a friend influenced me to uh, form a band with her and we got a, a guy in who could actually play some music and we formed a band called The Devices um and we played just punk gigs not very many mm. uh, then I went off to um Sheffield Polytechnic Oh, I know. that. Yes. The other thing was we'd formed this band called The Devices. We'd only done about four gigs and we were really quite bad. Um, but we were a, we were girls in a band and Cherry Red wanted to sign us up. And uh, we said, no, thanks. We're going to Polytechnic. So oh, we went to Polytechnic. <laughs> what a mistake that was. Um, so we went off to Polytechnic and I was played in a bedroom band and saw loads of fantastic gigs in Sheffield. It was a great scene at the time. Then eventually I came to Leicester um, and... I was very into politics and formed a band called the Soviets. And that was um, during the Red Wedge era where um, people like Billy Bragg were going around um, trying yes. to change things. And so I played one one or two gigs, I think, with Red Wedge as the Soviets. Then the main part of me being in a band and forming Poe came all af after that. Um, the reason I formed it was... <clears throat> 
I went through quite a bad spell of um, being, we'll call it adult bullying um, and depression and stuff like that. And I decided that a way to deal with that was to form a band and mm -hmm. to get out all my angry feelings by singing songs that would change the world and make people realise how awful some men can be. Um, so I formed this band with um, a guy called Julian that I knew and another guy called Mark Fuccio, who is apparently now a DJ. Um, and we were the first version of Poe. And then I formed it as a female band. I got two female musicians and I had the songs. I was writing all these songs that I thought were getting across my message. Um, but then everybody left me. I was possibly quite hard to work with. I don't know. Um, so I had no band, but I wanted to make an LP. So I decided to take the songs I had, get in some friends that weren't really in my band to record with me um, and just make an album. And at that time, I think because there was a lot of unemployment, the government had a scheme which was called Enterprise Allowance. And you could, um, if, you, if you had a thousand pounds, you could set up this company and then they would give you so much a week for a year. So I got somebody that I knew to lend me a thousand pounds, put it in my bank account and then pay them back the next week. And then I, I set up Rutland Records. So we put out the record by Poe. And then we also got lots of other bands that were similar. We put out records by them. Um, and, it, you know, it didn't make a living, but it was a fantastic um, time just putting records out there was no internet it, it's so hard to understand it now yes. because you just think oh i want to find out about this band in singapore i'll google them and you can find out about bands all over the world but in those days it was all the sort of fanzine culture and it was john peel and so somebody made a flexi with us in a fanzine and john peel played it and then people wrote to us because john peel would read out your um, we had a p.o box address john peel would read out your address and then when we'd go down the P.O. box and there'd be sort of 10 or so letters every day with people saying, I loved your record on John Peel and sending checks. And so it was just like playing at shops, really. It was fantastic. Um, so, yeah, that, after that, it, I got some proper people in to play um, the songs. It's always kind of been my band rather than a collective where we all stand around and make up a song together. I've always written songs on my own and then taken to the musicians and said, here's how I'd like you to play them. And they've been good hearted enough to let me yes. have my way. So, well, um, it's, well, it's interesting. <laughs> yes, a lot of your cultural references there sort of have seen, oh, yes, I can remember that. Because it's strange because I, I was you know, born in the mid 60s and my parents, I suppose, because of not having much money, had to sell their kind of record collection, which would have probably been things like Elvis and Little, I don't know about Little Richard, but Elvis was definitely my dad's favourite. But then he'd sold those to sort of basically sort of pay the rent and and, you know, to, to live because, you know, people were generally pretty poor in the 60s. So I remember sort of the, our record collection. It was it was a while before a record player appeared in the house. And then we had some very random records like the Great War themes or TV adverts. And then my brother brought a couple of albums, one being Sgt Pepper and the other one being Goodbye Yellow Brick Road, which I'd sort of discovered. He wouldn't let me play it. So I had to wait until he was out of the house. And then I would sort of sneak in and play this record, these two records. And this must have been the early 70s. And I just thought... Oh, yes, this is very good. You know, I didn't, there was no cultural reference to those albums, was it? It was just like, they're quite an interesting, you know, and I'd seen the Beatles films as well, which were, you know, they were much better than the Monkeys. But, you know, again, you know, all just 
seem normal. But yes, now you look back and you sort of think, my God, Sergeant Pepper, that was just an album I was playing in 73, kind of when my brother wasn't in the house thinking, yeah, this is a good band. But now you think, oh, that was... And they, they'd only just split up, really, hadn't they? That was the strange thing with the Beatles, when you look back at when you sort of so-called discover them with a million other people. Yeah, because music's so accessible nowadays, you don't think about how rare it was and how precious it was. My parents, apparently, this is what they told me, they had decided to buy a record player and they knew they had to save up for it for many, many months. And they thought, what we'll do is we'll buy a few LPs first so that when we can afford the record player, we've actually got something to play on it. Yes. <laughs> it just seems bad now because you can get anything you like when, whenever you like. Yeah, I know. Well that, well, that was exactly the thing. You know, it was a really big thing. So that's why I can remember these couple of albums they must have just bought randomly, you know, the Great War theme, which I did play a lot because I thought the 633 Squadron was a great theme. Um, you also had an LP of sound effects, BBC sound effects, and you'd put the record on and the, a man would say, glass shattering, beep. <laughs> And it go, and it would be the sound of glass shattering, and then it would go, piano falling down the stairs, beep, and then there'd be the sound effect of a piano falling down the stairs, and I used to listen to that LP. Yes, well, I know. I mean, I can well believe it because I, we did the same thing. And when you know, I, I can't remember the year. I'd have to sort of ask my mum. But when we got the automatic washing machine, we probably spent days just looking at it with a great amazement, as if it was a magical thing that was doing all this kind of stuff. That in the past, my mum used to have to pull out some weird contraption in the kitchen and spend the whole day. I don't know the ringer with, thing. The ringer thing with lots of boiling water on the sort of the the cooker and. And me, yes, the wooden tongs and this odd smell that she used to pour stuff in to try and clean clothes. So that was all part of my childhood growing up in the late 60s. We both sound really ancient now. We are really ancient. And this is when you look back to 1987, that all sounds ancient because it's pre internet as well. That idea of you know, I would every day I would handwrite letters and put them in envelopes and go and get stamps and go down to the post office and post them and collect in my mail. And people would send me fantastic letters from all over the world. Um, it, it was a lovely thing in a way. Um, you know, email, emails are great and they're very, very easy. But to think that people actually went to the trouble to send letters and I've still got some of the letters up in my loft oh god you must keep your memorabilia box going but look the interesting thing was and having spoke to a lot of bands of this period that the the, the the kind of key person of all this scene that we didn't really appreciate which you don't don't until things change and people die is john peel he was the great gatekeeper now I, I realized that having him to record on one's tdk d90 cassette every night to listen and then sort of buying the enemy probably on a wednesday morning but you know anything that john peel played sort of would then get you a wider audience because as i've often been you know like asking people how did they manage to sort of play in front of people who were their friends, family, and anybody else they could emotionally blackmail to see them. It was like, oh, well, John Peel played us, and then somebody phoned us up in Bristol or Leeds or Glasgow or even Norwich. You know, there was the Wild Club, you know, indie night, probably on a Monday or Tuesday. And, and you know, that was where, you know, somebody would put these kind of bands on, and that was kind of the network that was kind of created. And, you know, it was kind of interesting, but I sort of didn't appreciate it until now that, you know, John Peel was the great gatekeeper. So he did play this huge role. And I can remember recording his shows because I needed to listen to the music a few times because it was all new. And then scribbling down people's addresses when you wanted to buy a single <laughs> or, or get exactly. them. Up. 
Yes. And, and even today, I mean, it, it carries on today because I know it's, it's long gone, but um, my band played a gig on Friday night and there was a younger support act who played and they were really good. And I, all I thought was, they are a John Peel band. John Peel would have loved this band. Yes, and that was good. So going back all all things, going back to the the eighties period and the Red Wedge movement, because that was kind of a big one. Because because you obviously mentioned the thing that um, was so critical. Well, there was two. There was the unemployment benefit, which gave people a couple of years of being able to vaguely survive while being in the band, or the enterprise allowance, which meant that you could put something quite fanciful down and be you know self employed artist really which was great I mean it's a fantastic scheme that even you know now you look back and think that was genius even though everyone was very cynical about it for various reasons but the this, the country was very split at that time as well wasn't it because you had the indie scene or you had Duran Duran on top of the pops with all those kind of people having a great time so it was kind of it was almost in easy to fit into one group or the other because you couldn't fake it and obviously I was the sort of uh the indie kid and and sort of felt very misplaced and and awkward and shy so that was so but obviously it was that era of bankers as well and loads of money yes and yes the it, loads was, of money. it became whereas it had always been a bit um um unpleasant to show off your wealth um in that period in the 80s it was yeah show off your wealth show you not um and so if you were a poorer person that people felt angry about that um conspicuous consumption yeah uh, i suppose that's where red, red wedge well it was uh, huge and i just kind of um well last year somebody brought out a book on red wedge and rock against racism and it was kind of interesting because i'd sort of i could remember quite a bit of it because there was the bands like the redskins and obviously then you know the paul weller billy bragg and and the guy called junior who was one of the, and you know there was loads weren't there and even I think was it one of the Kemp brothers, which confused me at the time, was part of it, which I thought, well, how come you, you, you're part of Red Wedge? You're in Spandau Ballet, which is very strange. So with your the, the musical journey of Poe, did you, were you the sort of Dave, the David Bowie character, sort of kind of trying to orchestrate or keep, it, keep the baton going while sort of people came and went? Yeah, I think I'd started out with a clear idea that what I wanted to do was to write songs about Englishness and about how how it is to be an ordinary English girl living in society. So I wanted to write songs that were about human experience, not particularly about love um, and, you know, relationship types of songs, but just about small details. Um, so I kind of thought of literary ways into that. Um, you know, I've always admired the kind of Bob Dylan, Elvis Costello type of thing but I wanted to do it from a female point of view um so a lot of my songs are have quite bitter um female vocals but you wouldn't be able to tell if you just listen to the sound and I think a lot we got very popular in Spain and I don't know to what extent the people who enjoyed the music actually understood what the lyrics and the, the sense of the song was about because it did sound so jolly and happy um and the same we got quite popular in Japan as well um, and we were, we were happy if people like the band that's great um, I think it's only subsequently when people have listened again and listened more to the lyrics and when you listen with the looking back when you're older um, you think oh well actually that's quite a perceptive thing or that's a different theme for a song compared to other songs of the time mm. um, so we did we did get swept up in the indie pop music, whereas actually I I was previously a punk and 
was quite strident, I suppose, in my wanting to put myself forward. But for a long, long period, we were just part of indie pop, but on the more aggressive edge of it, perhaps. <clears throat> So when you did phase, there was a, definitely a phase one and then a phase two of Poe. How long did that, you know, your your phase two period last? Um, I don't probably through the through the nineties. I think I think by the end, because we didn't do lots of gigs, we 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 got into this habit of thinking, well, our audience is across the world, so there's no point us playing a gig in Nottingham or. Sheffield or London or whatever because we'll play a gig and 20 people will come from Sheffield and and that will be done whereas if we make a seven inch single we can send it all over the world and you know 300 people can enjoy it so we came became very much a recording band and we didn't do very many gigs and that was all through the 90s we did a Peel session in I think it was 1993 that got repeated um and we got, I was very proud to get NME single of the week in 1999. But soon after that, I think we split up. Yes. Just because I think we were just doing the same thing over and over again. And I just sort of thought, well, that's it. Also, my personal life was a lot happier. And the reason why I'd started the band was to express my anger to the world. And that anger had kind of dissipated. So I thought, well, there's, there's no point doing it anymore. Yes. I'm too old. <laughs> this is true, I know. I just remember the 80, 80s was such an angsty time on so many levels, and um, yes, it was a bit difficult at times. But did you, was was the, was it a, a sort of a, a closure that was coming and everyone could sort of say, yeah, that's that's it, rather than some Ziggy Stardust moment? It was, it was me that decided to stop. Um, and yes, I, th- I think sometimes things do run their course, within a band and and you've done whatever it is that you wanted to do and all you're doing is repeating the same thing again and again um and sometimes you start with this idea of oh we want to be become very successful and i don't think we had the wherewithal or the skills to become very very successful we were always going to be a, a small town band um and so yes it, it I would say it came to a natural conclusion. Um, I think the other guys would have would have carried on just as a you know as a nice hobby, but I thought that this is where it stops. Yes, and, and because obviously I'm back in since, but that's how I felt in in about two thousand, I think it was. Yes, that's fair enough. And because um, one thing that often trips up a lot of people in bands is the kind of ad- admin and the publishing. But because you were doing it on your own label, did you manage to sort of navigate that and keep control and ownership of your music? It, it's I think it's a double-edged sword, really, because I'd always gone into it thinking, these are my songs, I'm not going to sell my publishing, I'm not going to sign to anybody, because actually I think they're good songs and they have a potential to be lucrative. Um, and so I don't want somebody else to make loads of money out of me but on the other hand I didn't have the skills to make loads of money out of myself (laughs) so um, I think I'm pleased that I haven't sold anything to anyone Um, but who knows what would have happened I I mean there are things like we did a, a Spanish compilation CD and so I signed a contract with um, Elephant Records um, and they put out a compilation CD. Um, 
and then years later when the internet started and um itunes and stuff that um cd or if you like was available on itunes and so they were selling that for years and years and years and years um but i wasn't getting any money from it um so i don't i don't know which is better is it better to have people over the world hearing your music and you're not getting the financial recognition or to think, well, I've got these songs and if people really do want to hear them, um, then they're, they're worth some money. Um, yes. if, if musicians are trying to live off their music, which I wasn't, I had a job, so my job was paying me money. Um, I didn't want it just to be a, a hobby. And I don't like the idea that people's music is for free because if you are a genuine, you know, if you're a, a portrait painter or an artist of any description i think there's value in the work and there should be some payment for the work even if it's not a huge amount of money and at the moment i think people are doing music for free and so it's hard to make a living out of it if you really wanted to do that yes well i think i haven't spoke to an awful lot of bands i think one thing that quite a few people are doing is trying to archive their material you know they realize that you know they've had some fun you know the music they created was quite a long time ago so the emotional kind of torture and it wasn't all torture but you know there were ups and downs put it that way and often things don't end well and then sort of being able to look back at it sort of 30 years later which seems to be the period of time a lot of has to happen where people go oh gosh actually we should just kind of try and archive the bits and pieces we've got in random, you know, cupboards or in people's lofts, you know, in cardboard boxes, and then sort of have it put out there, and um, and I suppose let it go. I, you know, I, I know that's a bit of a cosmic way of being, but I think you know it was that. Otherwise, someone's going to just come along and just chuck the whole lot in the skip one day. So I think there is a sort of a little bit of a, a push. Yeah, I think it's really important to archive it, and my intention is to have it out there somewhere, and I, I just haven't worked out what's the best way to do it whether it's just there as a record or whether you release something or whether you actually try and promote it as here's a, an, an interesting historical uh, thing what would make me most happy I think would be if a new band would record one of my old songs you know even if they completely change it um but that that would really, really make me happy, someone to record my song. Yes, well, it's interesting, because I did an interview with members of this uh, band from Norwich called The Potting Sheds, who, them, yeah. they, you know, they had a bit of John Peel playing, they played a lot of gigs, but eventually, you know, things went. And, and then it was, they only put out singles and 12 inches, and then this, uh, there's, there's three record labels. There's that one in, you know, obviously Cherry Red, and then there's one in Germany called Fire Station, and one in, I think, America and New York called Cloudberry Records. And they, yeah. they seem, those two people obviously love putting, you know, hunting these down and putting them out, out as kind of, um, yeah, sort of archiving in little packages. And obviously there's probably no money. But so, yes, yeah, so the Potting Sheds had their album done by Cloudberry, but when I spoke to one of the members, he said the one thing he would love is somebody to cover one of his songs, which I thought was very sweet. And when I listened to him, I thought, well, they should do because they are brilliant. So, um, but he's got, now it's out there and, and people like, there's always somebody who likes to hunt these things down and be, you know, just for the, the love of hunting. So I'm sure it will happen. <laughs> so that's quite sweet. So then what's happened recently then with your musical journey? Well, I, I think the reason why a lot of people have that big gap is that they have children. So I had two children and spent, you know, 
time going to work, bringing up children, living an ordinary life. Um, and then somebody draw, drew my attention to the fact that on the internet there was this nostalgia for C86 type indie pop and people were talking about it and um, things like our LPs were on up for sale for £80 and things like that. And I, I, I thought, oh, my goodness, I've got them all in my loft. I can make a fortune. Um, and so I think... I started going to more gigs again <clears throat> about 2010, maybe. Um, and then someone I knew offered me a support slot, a solo support slot with Patrick Fitzgerald. Now, Patrick Fitzgerald was the first record that I heard on John Peel way, way back. And I wrote I wrote some letters to Patrick Fitzgerald back in 1979 or whatever. Um, and so I was persuaded out of retirement to do a solo acoustic. No, it wasn't a solo. Um, it was electric um, support to Patrick Fitzgerald, which I thought I thought it was OK, but I was very, very nervous. Um, and then I kind of caught the bug and thought, well, maybe I could do this. Then in 2014, I was diagnosed with cancer and had a whole year of treatment. And that's always good for, you know, sharpening your purpose in life. So during that time when I was having cancer treatment, I wrote a whole new load of new songs and contacted Gary and Paul, who'd been in the band before and said, oh, do you want to start up again? And they said yes. And then we did, we played indie tracks and a few other gigs. It, I felt it was a little bit weedy sounding but i just wanted to do it so then we've recently got in a new guitarist called mark who has made it an absolutely fantastic sound and the new songs well we played a gig on friday and somebody was saying the new songs are better than the old songs so that's pleased me um, it's really it's really nice sound and in a way i don't care what people think because having been ill having faced um you know your own mortality you think well it doesn't matter that i'm old it doesn't matter you know if i don't look right or people don't want to hear it i still i still want to play and i think the songs are have a value and i think they're different to what a lot of other people write in their songs mm. um, well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because <laughs> there's um, something which obviously we didn't appreciate when we were in our teens and 20s is is kind of one's parents getting old, which is quite an interesting experience. And obviously, yes, that's... And then on one's health, you know, and bizarrely, when you said that, I thought, oh, God, that was two thousand and the end of 2015 that I was diagnosed with cancer. And it was like, oh, that's interesting. Um, yes, you know, the, the words that you never expect when you go to see the consultant at a hospital, you're thinking, I'm not sure, they keep wanting to test me for something. And you have all those bled tests and then the you know various scans and then the MRI scan which is the big one isn't it and then yep. and then you sort of pop in thinking I have no idea I must go and just see them and then sort of walk out thinking I don't believe it I've just been told the one thing you never expected isn't it you know it's just one of those things which is a bit of a gobsmacker yes, yes. and then the difficult bit is then you you have to face everybody in your world and you suddenly become this sort of cancer victim type person and everybody's trying to be terribly terribly nice to you and inside you just feel weird um and I don't know it, it was just a, a very very strange experience from the start I was told it was a good prognosis and it was just a grueling regime to go through and now hopefully I'm all right for now um but it does it does change your perspective on things oh god it... yes <laughs> yes absolutely yes well you you know you can't help but sort of i don't know about um 
But yes, every six to eight months, there's this sort of CT scan or various other things for them to check up for a few more years. So it's kind of, it's always there, you know, it's not going to go away, is it really? Exactly, yeah. (laughs) There's no other other way to do that. You just go, yeah, so I've got an appointment. And then there's the anxiety of waiting for the post. So, um, and you can spot those letters from the other side of the house. So, um, yes, that's something that one didn't think about in the teens. So anyway, look, (laughs) cheerful. I know this is great, isn't it? (laughs) The cheerful subject of age. So did it feel with the members because obviously you had two there were seemed to be two bands um did you keep in touch with phase two of the poe band um terry Lowe, who was if you remember when i recorded my first album it was not with a real band it was some people that i knew that were friends that were musicians but one of those was terry Lowe, who i subsequently had as a guitarist in Poe and was married to and then subsequently divorced from. So I'm still in touch with him, but he's not in the band. Um, so, you know, it's like your personal life all runs into your musical life. Um, yes. And then the, when the all-female band, um, the drummer sadly died and I'm not in touch with the bass player. And the, the very original Poe, the one that's a DJ... I, I do see him occasionally, but yeah, I've lost touch with odd people. There, there have been, we've had a lot of bass players, in, even in phase two of Poe, there were quite a lot of bass players that seemed to come and go. And yes. I think bass players tend to be able to join any band for six months, and then if they don't like it, they can go and join another band for six months. Excellent. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so I'm glad you got a bit of the Fleetwood Mac story in your sort of musical journey as well. It's always good to know, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. I always think that's the you know the great the great story the the Fleetwood Mac story is the classic of all time, isn't it? I mean, the Beatles yeah. is quite boring compared to Fleetwood Mac. I think they just keep giving so much, you know. So um, yes, but it was Cherry Red because they obviously brought out um, the well the NME brought out the C86 cassette back in that yes. di- that year at 22, and then Cherry Red sort of hit the idea of uh, putting it out as a 66 track um, CD box set. Or in that, yeah. and then you know, obviously that went. So they did eighty seven, eighty eight, and eighty nine. So that also has kind of elevated a lot of those kind of really obscure bands and flexi tracks and B sides. And you also on C eighty nine, weren't you? Yes, I was. I was very honoured to be asked because a lot of the bands that are on it are higher profile than we were, and you know, a lot of really good taste stuff. Um, we've got a track on disc one, which is Confidence off our first LP the one that's not really available um because it was on vinyl only yes and And has that sort of created a bit more interest with the band because obviously those kind of compilations and archiving plus a bit of the social media world like you were saying at the beginning in the old days it was incredibly difficult and you know going to phone boxes with lots of two p's or sort of sticking a stamp on an envelope and thinking i hope i've written the address down right from what john peel was saying it's always kind of hit and miss but but now things are a little bit easier and you know that has you know benefits and also sort of not also great things as well but did did you know has the two things with social media and and this kind of um yeah just this compilation yes. helped bring the band back into focus it has and what what's sort of really heartwarming is how ardent some of the people are so they'll say you know I'm you know somebody who's 25 or whatever I've I've only just discovered 
your band and I think this particular song is fantastic or people will write and say I've been trying to play this song on the guitar what are the chords Bill? you know are these lyrics correct so I think I really do need to make more songs available on the internet and the lyrics and, and uh, yes. well, do more it, interviews like this, of course. Well, absolutely, yeah, because it's interesting that um, the Marine Girls just have got this kind of constant pulse, haven't they? I mean, they, when I look at Spotify, their, their monthly listening is quite extraordinary. So obviously, you know, a lot of people go, I mean, and they were kind of amazing time that they came out of that kind of early well late 70s very early 80s so indie pop really hadn't been a thing so their sound doesn't really in a way i think it sounds more like a mid 80s song with people sort of having a go yes, rather at, than... at the time their lp was remarkable it was so different to anything else and so a lot of people just didn't, were immediately attracted to it because it was so different and fresh. Yes. Well, I always thought the indie pop world of the 80s, though I, I, always, I sometimes feel that term is a bit, I don't know, not great. But it's I find it a little bit more interesting, no, a lot more interesting than the punk scene in a way. I know it's very controversial, but in, in the sense that it did, so, I mean, there weren't there weren't one or two heroes like Joe Strummer and Johnny Rotten and it was all a bit macho. It, it kind of, anything kind of, could go and you could be very like the Smiths on one hand or just very sort of delicate on the other hand and 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 people were quite experimental but there wasn't yes. really those kind of you know strident heroes with their kind of rock poses because no one really did a sort of indie rock pose well Morrissey did but that was with Gladioli and you know he definitely wasn't macho at the time but yeah I think what it took it took a lot from punk but it took from the sort of buzzcocks end of punk that you know the connection i have with punk is that diy mentality so it's not so much the sex pistols and the clash it's more um you know the swell maps and the buzzcocks and all those little bands do it yourself desperate bicycles do it yourself it was easy it was cheap go and do it um and i think the indie pop scene took from that that idea of you know it doesn't matter who you are um anybody can be in a band nothing is uncool it, it it can all be done and the good thing about the indie pop scene is it, it's very sort of loving and tolerant and like you say very diverse in musical styles and in people um yes. when i went when we played indie tracks it was it went from very very quiet thoughtful marine girls like stuff to very humorous raucous um filthy language um celebratory rock yes. um, all within that same um genre and everybody likes the whole lot it's great and what would you say i mean it's always a bit of a tricky one this because i what would you say to your 18 year old self or, or what would you kind of think were the key things that you've kind of learnt from the last few you know few decades from what you were back in those days because obviously we all start to sort of have different ideas and attitudes so it's not so much saying something to your 18 year old self as now or even back then but I just wonder what your kind of key things that you've learned from from life and the creative process. I think that there definitely seems to be a kind of artistic mentality as in I've always been musical I'm not trained musically um but i just don't seem to be able to stop the music in my head and i'm constantly whistling and singing and annoying people with 
the music that is there, whether I'm, you know, at work or doing something serious or going for a walk or cycling, there is always music there. And I think age 18, if I'd have had a mentor that had said, look, you're obviously really, really musical. You know, do you want to do this for your thing in life? And I might have said yes, and then I would have done it seriously. Whereas I think at 18, I just thought, well, this is a good hobby, um, but I have to get a proper job. And um, I didn't totally believe that it was possible to live a life as a musician, I think, uh, because I didn't know anybody who did anything like that. I think these days there's more there's more mentoring of young people that show a talent and through the internet through youtube and stuff um you can see what's what is possible but it is all about believing in yourself and i think i just i never really believed in myself enough for it to happen yes i think i, I think what what sort of strike strikes me or has struck you know strike me since um doing these interviews is i suppose it's sometimes having that I don't know, keeping the eye on the big picture, really. And, and you know, it was a band who, you know, I thought, well, OK, I wasn't obsessed with them. But I sort of like, with a lot of bands, you know, they fall apart really badly and they take their eye off the ball. But I realise certain bands don't. And you too, looking at them now, thinking, God, you really were, you have been really focused. You didn't mess it up. You know, because a lot of bands, I'm yes. not saying you did, but a lot of bands, it's like, you were really good. But somehow, you know, the squabbles amongst themselves and just not, looking at the big picture and then sort of yeah. sabotage, almost sabotaging it all and thinking, well, that was clever. But unfortunately, you know, you two have sort of just gone on and somehow they didn't lose the plot and they didn't look at what what they could gain if they kept it together. And that that kind of was quite, it's quite boggling, really, because not many bands do that, do they? No, I mean, I think also as a woman at that time, you know, when you read the autobiographies of women who sort of let themselves be taken into studios and managed and things sorted out for them, um, it wasn't necessarily an easy time to to be outspoken as a woman and say, no, actually, I want the sound to be like this and actually I want to dress like this. Um, it, it was It was quite hard because there was pressure at that time as to, what women in music should look like and sound like um and i liked to go into a studio and and have control over what was happening musically and i think to be successful i would have had to have let somebody else have control of that it probably would have come out better um but i was just too proud to to work with people who are experts i i was just too DIY. Yeah, it's quite tricky because actually I think the one person who I'm kind of amazed by because she didn't get destroyed because it isn't the greatest in industry for anyone really is Kate Bush. I mean, she somehow didn't get completely done over. And I, th I don't know if it's just because of her or the fact that she was with her brother and kind of I think his friends who were all the part of the band that they kind of managed to protect that whole unit so well. Yes. And they, you know, yeah. she, she didn't get destroyed by you know, some sleaze ball or some horrendous kind of management or anybody, you know, and I think that's incredible because otherwise I think you, one almost has to become like Madonna who's just this, you know, probably was quite ferocious, but, you know, 
you, you otherwise you just get destroyed don't you it, it's it's kind yeah. of um you know the music industry is very good at sort of saying you know give us what you've got and once you've given it you know you can sod off so um yes it's not an easy industry has, but has Kate Bush put out an autobiography she hasn't I hopefully uh, yeah because I would I would like to read that because all all that you've said it's like is that true <laughs> yes this is true <laughs> I don't know. That's my guess, actually. So when she puts out an autobiography, I'm going to read it. <laughs> yes. Well, she's very. She's been very good at almost that David Bowie thing of disappearing and yes. and, and and it looks. Well, I think like... that, that preserves your own sanity, probably by yes. not being too public. <clears throat> yeah, and what she, you know, all the records she put out and everything, you know, it probably was the case that. You know, she doesn't look like she's kind of led, led her... You know, it looks like she probably did a good publish. Someone on her team managed to sort of protect various things so that she could just kind of retire off into the distance, probably a bit like a few other artists, you know, where they thought, actually, I'm fine. I've just got to sort my brain out now and uh, go and do the washing and just kind of have a nice life because I've done my bit. So I don't know. It, it was just that her, bro her brother was in the band and I just wondered if he, being a bit more experienced, was able to kind of take the you know take some of the shot from it from her having to take it hmm. i know it's 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 some of these people that sort of are successful in music and then retire and they're doing all right you sort of think well are they sitting at home wishing they were playing a, <laughs> a local pub gig you know just having a bit of a, of a fun um knock around musically with some friends because actually that's really enjoyable and you can be at such a level of music that you know, you can't go out your house or or you, you can't just play a normal play around gig with some friends because it would be big news. Yes. Well, I think, yes, this is true. I think anybody like her can't do that. And the same with people like Liz Fraser. I don't think she can. I mean, when she gets when she gets spotted at a gig and when she does a, anything, you know, it goes all over the Internet. And I think she probably just wants to say, please leave me alone. I just would like to do this without people wanting to go back 30 years because I'm not that person 30 years ago I've you know it's it's been a lot that's happened in her life so I think um yeah you probably can't go back to being normal whereas you know like a lot of these indie bands that I've done you know from people like I, I saw you were doing a gig or have done a gig with a member of um the Brilliant Corners and the guy from the Weather Prophets and various other people you can go out to a gig and just do their solo stuff in a pub and it's fine. They're not going. People aren't going to sort of go weak at the knees for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It's it is a weird one. But you know, yes, I, I suppose in a way, you know, you 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 know, you're either a member of the Brilliant Corners or the Weather Prophets or you're Kate Bush. I think you're in a different league, aren't you? It's just exactly, like yes. you know, it is a different world, and probably the pressure of having watched all these BBC Four documentaries on a Friday, you realise that that pressure and the insanity of the industry when it gets to that level it's probably quite bonkers really so but then what I'm saying is if if you have that musician in you it doesn't matter whether you're Kate Bush or the Brilliant Corners you still kind of feel the same even though your life is totally different yes well I, I, I suppose she does occasionally bring out the odd album every five or ten years that she's sort of yes. been pottering on and I realized having so talking about this, people like Enya, you know, who again was in another, you know, she was huge, you know, all those yes. albums. I mean, she disappears for a long time and then brings out this album. And so in some little mansion with her recording studio, obviously she, she it seems like she potters away and then says, oh, I've done this record. And we all go, 
It just sounds like Inya. That's that's <laughs> you know we we we've got enough Inya. But you know she she's I don't know. Yes, I'm having to guess here, but from the fact that occasionally you just get this release, and I think Sade does the same. Occasionally, she just kind of brings out a single or an album every five or ten years, and it's like brilliant. But you know, it's I don't know. It's it's a weird one. We just have to, you know. I suppose you just scale it up and think it was probably a mad world out there. But at the same time, I always like to find new young acts as well. You know, if I see particularly acts with uh, women in bands and their 19, 20 years old, and I just think, oh, great, yeah, go for it. Uh, yes, well, I, it's I don't. I don't just live in that past nineteen eighties thing. I I am looking for the next generation of great songwriters and great performers. Yeah, and I think that's the thing that I have real problems trying to locate because it's now, as we were saying at the beginning, it was very difficult back in the old days to find stuff and you had to fight it. But now you just, you can't open your front door without having tons of music or anything just in your face, isn't it? It's just all there. And you're thinking, I need John Peel to sort of go through it and present me with you know, a show with five really good indie tracks and a few good reggae tracks and a good African track and a hip-hop track. You know, it was just really handy having him, having the faith in him, because I've never found another person to replace that. And I... And I don't think there is one that I would be able to... You're right. You know, and... He, he was just brilliant at that. So those bands out there that I would love, because I love hearing a new band and a new sound and then playing it to death for five weeks, or no, five days, um, and then wanting <laughs> another one, is, is, is what I've always enjoyed. But it's just so difficult because it's just, it's all there on Spotify or YouTube. And it's, it's like, but uh, you know, and it, but it's like you said, I mean, it was interesting last week or the week before when there was an article saying there's more young women buying guitars than men now some survey which I thought was like oh that's amazing it's you know it, it should and that's how it should be you know it should be it shouldn't be a gender thing at all really but you know I'm glad that people are standing up and doing it because it's just well, it, it used to be horrendous going into a guitar shop you know sort of 10 years ago 20 years ago if you went into a guitar shop as a female it was very very intimidating and it's it's a lot better now I would imagine, yes, I would imagine the staff has sort of moved on. Well, it's probably the old staff have died, haven't they? But um, <laughs> you don't have to do Led Zeppelin or Focus, that riff by Focus. But anyway, that's all good. So look, thanks for this. Do you have the one thing that I'm slightly lacking? There's probably a few things in life I'm lacking, but um, any kind of MP, a few MP3s of your sound and music? Cause yes, I'll try, and, I'll try and send you some. Have I got your email? No, but I will send you my email via the... Yeah, okay. So if you send me your email, um, I I might have to do it through a transfer thing. I don't know. Well, sometimes there's the the Dropbox, which is quite creepy. And sometimes I sometimes use WeTransfer. Transfer, yeah. But but between us, like two old people flailing around in the dark, um, we'll hopefully be able to navigate the technology of today. And discover yeah. and discover <laughs> WhatsApp. I've just discovered WhatsApp, and I'm just terribly excited. Someone said, "Oh, you, you know, well done, Granddad." It's like, give me a break. <laughs> and you don't pay, apparently. My children told me WhatsApp. It, you don't pay to um, send pictures, whereas if you, if I send them a picture by text, they go, "That's ATP." Yes. Yeah, I know. God, that's another one, isn't it? <laughs> yes, I, I, I sort of believe. But then I was also saying, well, how is it free if you're not got on your Wi-Fi, and it's like, no, if you're off Wi-Fi but using G3, you do pay some minimal amount, but 
it's like, oh, Christ, I don't know, I'm confused. But I think it's okay. I think generally it's a good one. And mostly I'm on a Wi-Fi band or whatever they're called. Yeah. And so that's okay. So, um, yeah, I know, crikey. I know, because now in the old the old days, we just, you know, had to talk to each other through a phone, which is, you know, seems so primitive. And now there's so many different places. Like phone boxes. I know, they've just all gone, haven't they? Not People don't even wean them anymore, do they? But look, but now there's so many places you can leave a message, which just boggles me, because there's messenger messages. There's kind yes. of the Twitter thing, which you can suddenly go, oh, Christ, someone's left me a message on Twitter, which is weird. And then, you know, then obviously email and some people say i don't do email anymore oh, for christ's sake and then and now there's whatsapp you know people go oh email that's oh that's gone mate you know it's like really i'm just i'm, I'm still i'm still doing it you know and it's so it's a very tricky one actually because occasionally you know because i once sent somebody a message who was in a band from the shrubs they were yes. they were actually on that cassette and um i sent a message through via soundcloud i found him and um and yes. I then didn't check SoundCloud for a few weeks. And then suddenly I'd sort of, you know, and he hadn't also checked SoundCloud for a few weeks. So this very long process happened of like, OK, we're, we're going to communicate via SoundCloud. That's so cool. you could do that. I know, I know. I've something. Yeah, so there is some option there where you can message somebody. So, But the thing is, as as I realise, that sometimes you set up some of the, one of these things, like, I don't know, Friends Reunited, and then you realise that decades later you haven't checked and it's gone bust. So, so there yeah, you go. Yeah. So, yeah, so, so it depends if people go back. Because occasionally... I get something from Flickr and I think, oh, Christ, I, I did once subscribe to Flickr. Didn't, well, not subscribe, but I was a member of Flickr. And yes, that community, which is all good. But look, sorry, Ruth, I'm babbling on here, aren't I? That's all right. No. Um, but thank you ever so much. And I'm glad that you embraced the world of probably Barley Cup and TVP in the 80s. It was what, what we all had to live off, which was fun. And if you still have any Barley Cup, I'll be so impressed. Barley cup, gosh, is that? Can you still get that? I suppose you can. Oh God, yes, it's still in the whole. I think it's there's probably got a lot of dust on it, but it's still there in a whole food shop in a neighbourhood near your house. I don't know. I went through the barley cup years, and then I thought, this is disgusting. I'm going back to coffee. Herb, herbal tea, coffee, yeah. Yeah, that's right. I still use TVP actually. So there you go. I, I didn't sell out. I'm still a vegetarian. So anyway, that's good. But look, thank you ever so much for this. I'll drop you my email address and that will be yeah. magic. But have a great day and thank you right. ever so much again. Thank you. Take okay, care. Bye-bye. And that was me in conversation with the artist Ruth Miller from Poe. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do at C86show. I will be there. And also all these... Um, Shows have been archived and you can find those on Spotify, iTunes and Podbean. Just go there. It's all good stuff. Anyway, this has been David Esau. Stay safe. Have a great week.